Father, we, we come before you this morning humbly as sinners. We know that if it wasn't for your kindness, if it wasn't for your mercy and your grace, we would be in serious trouble. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came and rescued us from that sin. And so we gather this morning to worship him and exalt him. And this morning as we look to your word, I pray that we would be reminded once again of this beautiful gospel by which you have saved us. So speak to us, Lord, through your word. Allow your word to have its intended effect on our lives as your spirit penetrates our hearts and our minds. We ask this in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen. Well, a little over 500 years ago, one of the most important events in all of church history occurred. October 31st, 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed what were called the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. This is really not an unusual act. Anytime a church leader or a theologian wanted to dispute a various doctrine or practice in the church, they would oftentimes post their disputes on the door, much like a, a public bulletin board. In fact, if Martin Luther were alive today, he probably would have tweeted out his arguments. Or if he had a blog, which he would have called Martin's Musings, he would have put it there. But in his day, you posted what you thought needed to be discussed on the church door. Well, what exactly did he post on the door? What were these 95 theses? I will not take the time to read them all to you this morning. But in short, Luther was concerned with some of the abuses that he saw taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. Specifically, it was the practice of indulgences that he was concerned about. Now, indulgences were a, a certificate that could, be, that could be bought that would bring about some kind of spiritual benefit for the person. And on this particular occasion, there was an indulgence preacher that was roaming the German countryside proclaiming that if anyone would give money to the Roman Catholic Church, they would be able to reduce the amount of time that they or their ancestors spent in purgatory. In fact, this preacher's famous slogan went something like this, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The Roman Catholic Church taught that when Christians died with some unforgiven sin, a sin they had not yet confessed to a priest and been absolved from, that person, when they died, would go to an intermediate place. They wouldn't go to heaven. They'd go to an intermediate place called purgatory where they would spend thousands, perhaps even millions of years, being purged of that unforgiven sin. And only then, only after they had been purged, would they be acceptable to enter into heaven with Jesus. Well, Luther saw this practice of selling indulgences for what it really was. It was abuse. 
It was abuse. The church in Rome was taking all kinds of money from these poor farmers in the German countryside just so that they could raise money for this big, massive church that they were building. Luther thought this needed to be discussed, which is why he posted it on the church door. In fact, Luther thought that the Pope would want to know about this because surely the Pope would never stand for such a thing. Well, little did Luther know the Pope was actually behind the whole thing. You see, the papacy was in debt and they needed some funds. So when Luther posted these 95 theses, he had no clue the firestorm that was about to ensue. In fact, Luther posted these 95 Theses in Latin, which was actually the language of the clergy. The average person did not know Latin. So he wasn't trying to spread this far and wide. He really just wanted to have a theological dispute. However, someone grabbed these 95 Theses and translated them into German. And then they were dispersed all over Germany. So within weeks, all of Europe was divided. Half of them were with this person named Martin Luther and half were with the side of the church. You see, Luther had just set himself up against the mighty Roman Catholic church, the only church in all of Western Europe. And pretty soon there was a price on his head. All Luther had tried to do was merely point out what he thought was a flaw. And now he was facing the wrath of Rome. But Luther kept studying his Bible. And as he began to study his Bible more and more, he realized that this wasn't the only flaw in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he saw dozens, maybe even hundreds. But most importantly, he discovered something. He saw that the Bible teaches something different from the Church of Rome when it comes to our salvation. You see, the Catholic Church taught, be baptized, partake in the Mass, go to regular confession, do penance. And by participating in all of these different sacraments, God's grace would then be given to you. Luther comes around, he says, no, no, no. The scriptures teach that we are justified. We are declared righteous before God by faith alone, in Christ alone. The two famous Latin phrases, sola fide and solus Christus. Luther was warned to recant of his writings and his beliefs publicly or else he would be burned at the stake. And when standing trial, Luther famously said, quote, Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or sound reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they all contradict each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther's actions sparked the Protestant Reformation, a movement that rippled all throughout history, all the way to upstate South Carolina. 
Because of Luther's boldness, the gospel of Jesus Christ was recovered. Because of his willingness to stand for the truth, there are Protestant churches all across the world for which this this is one of them that teach and proclaim that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way of salvation. It's not Christ plus works. It's just Christ. Christus solus. Christ alone. Luther discovered these truths because he was committed to the scriptures. In addition to sola fide and solus Christus, Luther was committed to sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture is our ultimate authority. And it's to the scripture that I ask us to now turn. Let us look at John chapter 14 this morning. John, the gospel of John chapter 14. In the Gospel of John, you may be aware of this, Jesus makes several I am statements. There's some significance with that, going back to Exodus chapter 3 where God told Moses that his name was I am when he was speaking to him in in the burning bush. In John, we see several times where Jesus says I am. For example, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And this morning, we're going to look at one more of those I am statements. And if I had to guess, it might even be the most controversial of all the I am statements today. So let's look at it together. We're in John 14. We'll read the first seven verses. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, You will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, we could spend a lot of time delving into this threefold claim of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life. However, when when we consider the whole context, one of these seems to take precedence above the others. Remember, Jesus says, I'm about to leave you and you won't be able to come with me. You won't be able to go where I am going. I'm going to my father's house and I'm preparing a place for you there. Verse 5, Thomas asks, Lord, we, we don't even know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Clearly, the point of emphasis of this threefold statement is that Jesus is 
the way. This is confirmed by the second part of the clause when Jesus says, no one can go to the Father except through me. So Jesus is particularly focused on being the way. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus being the truth and the life is insignificant. Both of those play supportive roles. Jesus is the truth in that he embodies God himself. He is the definitive and final word of God. Jesus is the life, the one who has life in himself, who gives life and is himself eternal. Only because Jesus is the truth and Jesus is the life can he be the definitive way for others to come to God. So if you're taking notes, this is our main idea this morning. Very straightforward. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now that's a bold statement. And, and much like a diamond that is multifaceted, we're going to explore this statement from multiple angles. There's multiple ways that we can look at this. We'll consider two of them this morning. The first angle I want us to consider is this. Jesus' way is exclusive. Jesus' way is exclusive. That is to say, there is no other way. In fact, this is almost word for word what Jesus says. I am the way, no one can get to heaven, no one can get to the Father except through me. There is no other alternative route. It's exclusive. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 10, Jesus makes a similar statement in the context where he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 10 verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters in through me will be saved. That is to say, if you want to enter into God's fold, you have to go through the gate, and there's only one of them. It's Jesus. The gate is Jesus. Now, if, if you pay attention out there, you know that this is a controversial claim. It's a claim that's scorned by millions. After all, we live in a pluralistic society. For example, the renowned theologian, Oprah Winfrey, she says there are millions of ways to get to God. She pictures our path to God a lot like going up the same mountain where God is at the top. But we all take our different paths to get there and, and no one way is better than the other. She clearly disagrees with Jesus. I don't know about you, but when Oprah and Jesus disagree, I'm going to side with Jesus every time. I find that's generally the wise thing to do. But Oprah speaks for millions. On more than one occasion, I've been called arrogant for saying that salvation is only to be had through Jesus. After all, why does Christianity have exclusive rights on eternal life? I mean, don't all religions basically teach the same thing? 
Have you ever heard that? Well, the reason many people say that is because just about every religion in the world says that we are to love each other and be kind. And this makes sense because the Bible does tell us in Romans chapter 2 that the law of God is written on our hearts. We all have this innate moral compass that comes from God. And we all know, for example, that it's wrong to kill and steal. It's right to love and to be kind. God has implanted this on the heart of every human being. This is why every religion basically teaches that. But that's basically where the similarities come to an end. In fact, when people make the claim that all religions are basically the same, they demonstrate they haven't actually studied all the different religions. For example, Hindus acknowledge millions, millions of gods and goddesses. Buddhists say there is no deity, there is no God. The New Age people believe that God is within themselves. Muslims believe in one powerful yet distant and unknowable God. Christians believe in a triune God that is loving and knowable. And more than that, each of these world religions, and you can throw in the other ones too, Judaism, Mormonism, all of them teach that salvation is something that we have to achieve. We have to work really, really hard and do our absolute best. Maybe it's following the five pillars of Islam, daily confession, prayer, almsgiving, fasting, pilgrimage. If you do a good job with those five pillars, you get to go to paradise. Or maybe it's following the Hindu scriptures called the Vedas and having the right kind of conduct and doing your moral duty. And if you do your best when you're reincarnated in the next life, you won't have to experience as many hardships. And if you do even really good, you'll be able to escape the cycle altogether. Or if you follow the Buddhist teachings, if you meditate well enough, if you rid yourself of enough fleshly desires, then you might escape flesh altogether and achieve nirvana. Or for others, it's get baptized, partake in weekly mass, do penance, and hopefully all this will be enough to get you to heaven. You see, just about every world religion says, do your best and hopefully that's enough. The Protestant faith, though, the one that was spurred on by Martin Luther says, your best is never good enough. Eternal life is not what you can do. It's about what has been done. Jesus Christ died on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago, and he rose again from that tomb three days later. That's the only hope for fallen humanity. While every other world religion says you have to climb your way up the staircase to heaven, Christianity says that God descended the staircase to rescue us. Our faith is unique among all the world religions. But how do we know it's the right one? Is it just a blind leap of faith? 
I'd suggest to you that it's not. As I've studied other world religions, I've noticed a common trend amongst them all. In each case, in each of these religions, they've started by one man's private experience. Joseph Smith, the Krishna, Muhammad, Buddha, all had private experiences. And then they told everyone about their experiences that they had in private. The problem with this is that no one was there to verify what they said. Or no one was there to falsify what they said. You just have to take their word for it. Christianity, on the other hand, is more than just one person's private vision. Christianity's faith is based on public events. Jesus' ministry was public. His crucifixion, public. His burial, public. His resurrection, public. People could investigate these claims. You heard that Jesus was crucified? They could go fact check that. They heard his tomb was empty? They could go check the empty tomb. They heard he appeared to over 500 people at one time, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. They could go talk to those people. You see, there is so much more historical evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity than any other world religion. And the sheer fact that there were 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem, the very place where all of these events happened, 10,000 Christians within five weeks of Jesus' death tells me that something really crazy happened. Something miraculous must have happened to gain such a massive following in such a short period of time. Maybe you're here this morning and you follow a different faith. First of all, thank you for being here at a Christian church. I, I know it's really awkward and difficult to go to a different environment like this. Maybe you're here because a friend invited you or maybe you're just curious about Christianity. I would just encourage you, keep investigating the truth claims of Christianity. Keep investigating it. And the reason I say that with such confidence is because for 2,000 years, the most intelligent skeptics have been going after Jesus. And Jesus still stands. Friends, Christianity isn't going away because there's just too much evidence for it. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, there's really two responses to this. Number one, as I just said, have confidence. Have confidence that your faith really is rooted in something historical. This isn't pie in the sky fairy tales. There are really good reasons for believing that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, was crucified on a Roman cross, and appeared alive to a, again to people just a few days later. That ought to give us confidence. Our faith is rooted in something historically certain. Second, if you're a Christian, because you know that Jesus is the one true way, this ought to compel us to share this news with others. It's not arrogant to tell people that Jesus is the right and only way of salvation. 
Now, it might be offensive. Yes, the gospel is offensive. The gospel says we are all sinners. We're all unable to save ourselves. We are in a big, giant mess. That's an offensive message. Of course, the good news is that God has given us a way out. So while it's offensive, it's also loving to share it at the exact same time. Not too long ago, an elderly lady stopped by our church. She was lost. She was going from Chesney to Atlanta. Somehow she ended up at our church off Highway 290. I'm not sure how that happened. Now, I could have told her, and she was going down 290 towards 221 towards Woodruff. I could have told her, honey, you just keep doing that. If that's the best way for you and that works for you, you do that. After all, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to step on your toes, tell you you're wrong. I didn't do that. I corrected her. I told her, turn around 290, get back on 85 and go south. And you know what? She was really thankful. <laughs> she was thankful. Telling people the right way, the truth is a loving thing to do, friends. Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So put yourself in the shoes of the unsafe person. Wouldn't you want to know the truth? If someone had the truth, wouldn't you want to know it? If we had the cure for cancer and we don't tell anyone, that's not loving. If we had the magic cure for COVID-19 to end it all tomorrow and we didn't tell anyone, that's not loving. And eternal life is more important than that. Far more important. Because Jesus is the way exclusively and we know this truth, friends, we've got to get the message out. We've got to make disciples of Jesus. So this first angle we explored, Jesus' way is exclusive. That is, there is no other way. Secondly, we see that Jesus' way is sufficient. Jesus' way is sufficient. In other words, Jesus is enough. He's enough. What he did was sufficient for our salvation. There isn't anything else that needs to be added to his finished work. He did 100% of it. Now, how is that possible? How could one man deal with all of the sin effectively and completely? How could one man deal with an infinite amount of sin? It's because he wasn't a normal man. He was a man, yes, flesh and blood. He got tired, sick, and hungry like the rest of us, but he was much more than that. Notice what Jesus says in verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. You see, Jesus is putting himself on the same level as God. And again, Jesus does a similar thing in verse 7. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. If you know me, you'll know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have 
seen him. It's remarkable. Now, our country has a lot of ambassadors all across the world. And the job of the ambassador is to represent the President of the United States, no matter where they go. And while they are their own person, wherever they are, they act on the interest of the President. So when Jesus says, if you really know me, you will know my Father, he's saying essentially, I am God's ambassador. In fact, he's the most perfect ambassador. Even the best ambassadors out there all have different personalities and skill sets from the one that is sending them. Yet Jesus is just like the one who sent him. Jesus shares the same exact nature with God the Father. Just as the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal. Just as the Father is holy, the Son is holy. Just as the Father is love, the Son is love. Just as the Father is all-powerful, the Son is all-powerful. Jesus is a perfect representation of God the Father. They are different persons, yet they are perfectly unified in every way. And because Jesus is this unique God-man, he is able, he is able to deal sufficiently with all the sins in the world. You and I could never accomplish that fact. We, we can barely bear the weight and guilt of our own sin, let alone the sins of the entire world. But... In order for someone to bear an infinite number of sins, that person must be infinite themselves. And only one person has ever fit that criteria. It's Jesus Christ. Stephen Wellam, one of my seminary professors, author of a book titled Christ Alone, he writes this, quote, Christ's work is sufficient because of his exclusive identity. As God the Son incarnate, his substitutionary life and death accomplishes all of God's purposes and plans without remainder. As fallen creatures, we contribute nothing. We merely raise the empty hands of faith and find our complete salvation in Christ alone. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished it all, a hundred percent. This was the battle that Martin Luther faced. You see, during his lifetime, he didn't battle the, the pluralistic society that we battle with today. Western Europe was entirely Christian. In fact, your life was actually at stake if you weren't a Christian, but Luther's battle was against those who taught that Jesus' work wasn't enough. Jesus' death and resurrection, it wasn't sufficient for our salvation. It was necessary, but not sufficient. It only accomplished part of what was necessary for salvation. You see, the Roman church taught 
That in order to fully receive the grace of God, one had to perform all kinds of different religious activities. For example, the church taught that one had to be baptized in order to be justified before God. Then one had to keep up with regular weekly mass. And by partaking in this regular mass, the grace of God was being infused into you each week. And then you had to go to weekly confessional and confess your sins to a priest. And then the priest would give you a whole list of things called penance that you had to do in order to be absolved or forgiven of your sins. These things could include going on certain pilgrimages and touching certain relics or praying certain kinds of prayers. And you have to keep up with all this stuff over and over and over and over again. You see, the church was teaching it's Christ plus works. Christ plus all your effort. Jesus died and rose again for sins, but you still need to do your part too in order to be fully forgiven. Luther comes along and says, no, it's Christ alone. Solus Christus. Jesus accomplished our salvation in its entirety. He paid the debt in full. We had accrued this massive debt and Jesus paid every penny of it. There isn't any left over. As Stephen Wellham said, no remainder. One of the interesting things about other world religions is how their founders are all radically different from the founder of Christianity. None of the founders of world religions ever claimed to be divine or sinless for that matter. By their own omission, Muhammad, the Buddha, Krishna, they all struggled with sinful desires. Even within the Quran itself, Muhammad himself was told to ask for forgiveness of sins. Perhaps it was the sin of his 11 marriages. Or consider the Krishna of the Hindu religion. He's notoriously made a pass at one of the milkmaids. Or the Buddha, who left his home, turning his back on his wife and son in search of enlightenment. None of these founders were perfect, and they knew it. But not Jesus. His life has always been regarded as the most pure to have ever lived. Several times throughout the Gospels, he challenges people to point out his sin, and the response is always the same. Silence. In Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet he is without sin. Jesus was sinless. And because he was sinless, he was able to offer himself as the spotless lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. You see, that was the only acceptable sacrifice in the Old Testament. It was the spotless animal. It was only the spotless, the perfectly pure animal that God would accept for a sacrifice. And Jesus alone fits that criteria. He came as the spotless lamb of God. No one else has ever been sinless, just Jesus. Also, as you look at these other religious founders, it's interesting, they will all point you 
to some truth. They'll, they'll try to point you in the right direction. They'll try to point you to the Quran or to the Vedas or to the writings of Confucius. They will point you to the way. Jesus, on the other hand, comes around and says, I am the way. I am the way. He points to himself. I am the truth. Jesus is more than just a GPS that tells you how to get where you're going. Or if you're from a previous generation, he's more than an atlas that tells you where all of the roads are. My dad to this day still uses an atlas. I remember a few years ago, I bought him a Garmin GPS. This is before iPhones were popular and we, we all have GPSs on our phones now. I got him a Garmin GPS and you know what? He never ever used it. It really irritated me. But he refused to do it. My dad took such great pride in knowing where everything was. And I can recount on numerous occasions, I'd put it on there, I'd, I'd put in the destination, it would tell us to turn, he'd say, oh, that thing doesn't know what it's talking about. And on more than one occasion, he had to eat his words. It did know what it was talking about. Jesus is more than just a GPS or a roadmap that tells you the way. He's like the vehicle on autopilot and he's going to the right destination and all you need to do is hop on. He's going to get you there. He is the way. Where is he taking us? Verse 2 says he's taking us to the Father's house, a place with many rooms, a place that has a giant blinking vacancy sign out. He says there's lots of rooms available. In other words, it's not too late. It's not too late for anyone. You can have eternal life. You can go to heaven and be with Jesus forever if you'll just hop on Jesus. Or as the Bible says, if you will repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ alone, you can have eternal life. Friends, it will not do to think that you are contributing one ounce to your salvation. If you think you're contributing one ounce to your salvation, what you're saying is that Jesus wasn't enough. He was only mostly enough. And then you aren't trusting in Jesus alone. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3.5. He writes, quote, he saved us, not, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us not because of anything inside of us, any goodness, any good work, but because of his mercy. Or Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, well-known verses says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, not by works, not by works. Our salvation is all of grace. We are completely undeserving. God has just decided to show kindness to us 
by graciously saving us. And if you've put your trust in Christ, God accepts you because of Jesus's finished work. For the Christian, this is a good reminder. Because functionally, a lot of times we live as if God's love for us is based on our own performance. Oh, I've, I've, been, in, I've been sinning a lot lately. God must not be very happy with me right now. Or, I've been really good this week. Been to church, reading my Bible, serving. God must be really happy with me. Friends, let me remind you that God's love for you is not dependent on your performance. God's love for you is dependent on Christ's performance. Praise the Lord, because he was perfect. And now, if you are a Christian, God loves you like he loves his son. He views you like he views his son. Your life has been hidden with Christ. So stop thinking your acceptance is based on you and start thinking God's acceptance of you is based on Christ. Christ did it all. His death was sufficient for you. Nothing you can do to, can add to God's acceptance and love for you. Jesus is enough. Friends, Jesus is the only way of salvation. We saw his way is exclusive. There is no other way. In fact, Peter tells us in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There aren't multiple paths, just one, and his name is Jesus. And secondly, we saw his way is also sufficient. You can't add anything to what he has done. Because of who he is as God, Jesus is the only person equipped to be able to deal with the sins of mankind. And so we must trust in Christ alone and not think that we can add anything to what he has already done. Let me close us with a quote from Martin Luther. He says this, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these wonderful, glorious truths that Jesus is enough. That Jesus, what he did was sufficient for our salvation. I pray that each person here this morning would rest in that. If there's a person here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would convict their heart. If they're relying on Christ plus works or they're, they're thinking there's another path, I pray that you would help them to see that your son is the only way. That they need to hop on him because he alone will get us to where we need to go. 
We praise you, Lord, for this beautiful picture of your grace. We see that it's all of you and your kindness. It's not our effort or our good works. It's Christ and him alone. So this morning, we want to praise him and glorify him and live for him and share him to the ends of the earth. Help us, Lord, to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.